0: I was just looking around there's no clock on the wall anywhere is there No. It was okay ground yeah. ground from earlier. that's right uh, in uh, PowerPoint view like that I can't see my computer I'll just have my good evening, I think it's uh, 7.15, I think it's time to begin. Uh, Welcome tonight, I'm glad to be here. I'll go ahead and introduce myself, I recognize some of you and I've gotten to say hi, but my name is Ryan Meyer, I've been here uh, twice before as a substitute, uh, but this is my first time for a regular class, so I'm thankful for the opportunity. Uh, I'm a staff member there at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. I teach biblical languages. Um, My family moved here uh, 10 years ago, this February, so that I could attend the seminary. I graduated from the seminary. In case he asked, Dr. Combs was my favorite professor. Um, Make sure he knows that. Um, So my wife, Audrey and I, I have two children. We just got our daughter settled down at Bob Jones University for her freshman year, so that's a... That's a new thing for us, to have one of our kids gone. And then I have a son who's in 10th grade, so we still get him for another three years. He's not a finished product yet, so you get to spend a little bit more time with my son. But I'm thankful uh, for this opportunity. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew. Did everyone get the notes? All right. So, Lord willing, we'll get to do this in two semesters. Um, and I'll just start out here with going through some of the prim- preliminary stuff about the class and what we're going to try to do. In Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to try to really focus on the purpose and the argument of the gospel. So what particular thing about Jesus, his Lord, is Matthew trying to emphasize? We'll give special attention to how Matthew arranges specific accounts of Jesus to make one unique story about the Messiah and his people. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But the goal is that all of us would be more familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ as presented by Matthew, both for our own spiritual growth and also so that we can be better equipped to share that good news with others. I think if I asked tonight, do you want to be better equipped at sharing the gospel, I think we'd probably all say, yeah, that sounds like a good thing to do, right? And maybe sometimes there's a disconnect between sharing the gospel or knowing the gospel and studying the gospels Uh, it could be that when we think of the gospel we go quickly to the romans road or maybe certain passages in paul and that's not necessarily a bad thing but i'm hoping in this class that we can also see how the gospels themselves the story that they tell about jesus are very impactful in our knowledge of the gospel so i'm using gospels two different ways right off the bat so I'll, i'll explain that so When we talk about the gospel or the good news about Jesus, the message that we share, I'll usually refer to that with a lower G, the gospel message, the gospel that we believed when we were converted. But the gospels with a capital G, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, are the individual gospel accounts from the biblical writers. So the first four books of our New Testament. So four course objectives, right? So... Any good class, you have to have some kind of purpose that we're going to try to aim towards. Now, there's not going to be any quizzes. There's not going to be any tests, no kind of assignments. But I'm just hoping through our discussion time together and any kind of reading that you want to do on the side, that these are the objectives that we would reach. First of all, I'm hoping that you'd be able to articulate Matthew's purpose for writing and show how Matthew develops his argument. So if somebody asks you, why did Matthew write his gospel? I'm hoping that you'd be able to give an answer to that and be able to explain it. Second, I'm hoping that you'll be aware of some of the major interpretive problems in Matthew and their proposed solutions. So every once in a while, we'll come across a passage that's debated, and I'll give you two, three, four, five different options, maybe, on how people take it. And then I'll, I'll give you my option, which obviously is right, right? I'll give you a option, and I'll try to defend it. But I'm hoping that you'll at least be aware of the fact that there are some debated points and then have a reason for at least one of those. I'm hoping that maybe you become a little bit more familiar with some of the other resources. So you don't have to do any extra reading in this class, but I'll reference books. And if you're the type of person that likes books and wants to do further reading about the Gospel of Matthew, then I'm happy to to point you towards some resources that you could use. And finally, and this is probably the most important, I'm just hoping and praying that we will all gain a greater appreciation of the good news, the gospel, the way it's contained in the gospel of Matthew. So I I am recommending a book. So I've taught this class before, and people sometimes will ask me, well, is there a book that I could read along for extra information? So this is a commentary, okay? So it's not necessarily a story that's meant to just be picked up and read it's not even a theology book that's developing one specific thesis it's a commentary so it goes verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew Uh, it's written from a perspective that I mostly agree with every once in a while I'll disagree with something that Dr. Toussaint says in the book but most of the time I'm in agreement with him and I find it very helpful it's a it's a small commentary it's relatively easy to read um dr combs mentioned that if you were interested in, in getting a copy that they could uh order them for you from the the resource center here so i was asked just to pass around this clipboard so i'll just start passing around this clipboard and i guess it can end up back with me but if you wanted to get a copy of this through the church that's available to you if you don't want to read it that's fine um all of the major things that it talks about we're going to talk about in the notes that i give you but if you want something extra, there it is. If you, uh, I believe he said it was $25 through Amazon. So $25. All right. Any, any questions there about the, the book? So if, if you came to this class tonight and you thought, I don't want to do any extra reading, I don't care about a textbook, then just, just forget I just said that. Okay. You can just cross that out of your memory. But if you were thinking, wow, I wish I had some extra reading to do about Matthew and I could dive a little deeper, that would be one commentary. And then at the bottom of page one, I list some other commentaries. These are ones that I'll regularly be referencing. And anytime you reference someone's book, you want to give them credit. You don't want to plagiarize. I want to acknowledge where I'm getting those ideas from. And so these are ones that I'll just put in a parenthetical reference, their name, the page numbers, just so you know, I'm giving credit. To these other scholars who i find helpful all right the second page shows a, a schedule of what i'm hoping to go through each night it, it i think it would be helpful if you were able to during the week read the passage of matthew that we're going to discuss that will, you could come to class already familiar with it if you had a question about it you could raise your hand and ask me especially if it's something that i don't particularly address Uh, there's that one column that shows you the the pages in the recommended book that would go with that section so if you wanted to read the book with the discussion you could follow those page numbers but the important book is over on the right the the new testament itself so next week we're looking at matthew one the week after lord willing matthew two and so on roughly one i'm going to try one chapter a week every once in a while we'll double up So we have two semesters. So I'm hoping in this first semester to get through Matthew 13, which is the central discourse in the gospel, and then to come back next time with chapters 14 through 28. All right? Yes, ma'am? Will they be sent to us? Yeah, so um, I believe they upload them to the resource section inside of our class group. So is that sound right to everybody else i saw them there so i'm sending them to the church and then the church is gracious enough to i think they're printing some copies right but they're also uploading them to the uh, class page it's under the resource tab all right enough preliminary stuff right let's get to the fun part let's look get to the gospel of matthew so picking up on page three Um, I'll try not to just read my notes. I'll try to come up for air and look to see if you have a hand up for a question. If you have a question, I'm happy to stop and talk. I will kind of keep my eye on my notes though because otherwise I tend to gab and I tend to get long on certain points and the notes will help me keep on track, okay? But feel free to wave your hand at me if you need to catch my attention. So I think a good way for tonight to introduce the Gospel of Matthew would be to ask six questions of the book. Okay? So we're going to ask a who, a what, a when, a whom, a why, and a how. Okay, So the first one is the, the who. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Well, that might seem obvious, but actually, as I say there in point A, it's technically anonymous. There's nowhere in the Gospel itself that says that matthew is the writer now looking at our first slide here all of our early manuscripts all of our early copies Some people claim that it's possible that Matthew was written in Arabic then mm-hmm. translated yeah. in Greek. Is there any, any possibility? It's a possibility. So basically everything in this paragraph is debated uh, because obviously Irenaeus didn't write in English. So this is a translation of what he said. And so then people debate, are we translating him correctly? So one argument when, is you know, when he says that he wrote in the Hebrew dialect, maybe that should be translated. He wrote in a Hebrew style. So in a little bit, we'll talk about the fact that he seems to assume that most of his readers are Jewish, and so he puts lots of references to the Old Testament, and he uh, does other things that seem to be very Jewish or Hebrew in the writing. So that could be what Irenaeus is talking about. The problem with saying that he wrote in Aramaic is we just don't have any manuscript where it's in Aramaic. All of our early manuscripts are, are Greek. and So I think it's more likely that he wrote in Greek, but that he wrote in a Hebrew style. Or the iron Ace is just wrong, too. This isn't scripture. This is one man living 150 years later. So that's like us talking about Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it seems close to us because we're so far away. But actually, the difference between him and the New Testament writers is pretty significant. But it's a good question that I don't really have a, a good answer to. But my hunch is that he actually wrote in Greek. But this is what he says. He's, and notice he, does, he has the traditional authors for all four of them, and he actually puts them in an order. So he seems to assume that the order they appear in our New Testament is the order that they were written in. He says, Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome and laying the foundations of the church. So that would be like the early 60s. And then he says, after their departure, which could be a reference to their death, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what has been preached by Peter. So this is where we get the tradition that Mark was Peter's version of the gospel. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. And then afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So, one of several indications that, excuse me, that the early church believed that Matthew wrote it and that he wrote it sometime in the 60s, which we'll come back to here in a second. But what about inside the book? I think this is just interesting. But if you look at point D there, there are some evidences within the book itself that Matthew was the writer. So, only in this book. Does matthew actually refer to the fact that he's a tax collector all right that could be interesting only in this book is he called matthew in mark and luke he's referred to as levi most people then in the first century in palestine had multiple names they had something to do with the fact that they all spoke multiple languages most of them spoke aramaic most many of them spoke greek some of them also spoke latin they tended to have multiple names but it's interesting that only in Matthew is Matthew called Matthew. It could be significant, right? Also, when Matthew gives a feast for Christ in his house, Mark and Luke refer to the house as his house, while the book of Matthew refers to it simply as the house. So you see what's going on there? The two men who maybe are, are from, coming from a different perspective, they refer to it as Matthew's house, his house. But the writer of Matthew just refers to it as the house, which would make sense if he's maybe talking about his own house. So that would be more evidence. And I find this one interesting that only in Matthew do we find the little story of Jesus and Peter paying the temple tax with a coin found in a fish. Maybe significant because it's about taxation, and Matthew was a tax collector. We're going to look at many different places in Matthew's account where he includes stories that only he includes that they're unique to him, which is going to tell us a little bit about his special emphasis, the point that he wants to make about Jesus. So as we go through the the Gospel of Matthew, I'll be sure to point out multiple places where he includes unique stories. All right, so who wrote it? I think the, the disciple Matthew wrote it. Well, what is it? What kind of genre is it? What kind of book is this? Well, this might seem like, well, why does this question even matter? Well, it matters because when we pick up a book, even though we might not consciously recognize it, we always have some kind of reading strategy for what we're reading. If I pick up a newspaper and then I pick up a comic book, I read them a different way. I have different rules. If I read an email from my wife or I pick up a real thick scientific journal, it's both writing, right? There's some things in common, but they're of a different genre. They're of a different kind in each kind of writing that I read, I have a set of rules, a strategy that I use for interpreting it, right? If I pick up a book and it says once upon a time, I know immediately this is probably not a true account, right? If we started writing newspaper accounts that way, no one would believe us, right? Because that just keys a certain strategy that I'm reading something that's fake news, right? Well, what kind of genre is the gospel? I think most Christians have just always assumed that there are biographies about Jesus. I I think if I had taken a poll before the class and I said, hey, what is the Gospel of Matthew as far as a type of book? You would have said, well, it's a story about Jesus. It's a biography. And I think that that's actually correct. Other labels have been proposed. So point B there, I just talked briefly about the fact that some have argued that this is like a, a midrash. This is a parable. This is like a fictional account that's supposed to make a theological point. Now, we know that Jesus, in the gospel, he does tell parables. He does tell stories that aren't necessarily true in order to make points. But it's obvious to us that he's doing that. Like, there's no trickery involved, okay? We know that when Jesus says there was this certain man who went up to Jericho and he starts telling us an account, we're like, well, this isn't necessarily a true story. He's telling this for an illustration, He's telling it to us to make the point. But it's wrong to go from that to saying that the whole gospel is just one giant parable. There's no indication that that's how we're supposed to read it. I think we're just supposed to read it as a, fact, a factual account about our Lord's actual life. But it is a biography. If we go over to the next page, and I think it's a biography that has some features that were unique to the Greco-Roman world. So they, you know, when you think about the Gospel of Matthew, Not very many stories about Jesus' early years. No description of what he looks like. Not a lot about what he thinks about, like what he likes to eat. It leaves out some of the normal things that we might have looked for in a biography. But if we picked up a Roman biography from that time period, it looks a lot like them. It focuses on his adult years. It focuses on his main sermons, his teaching. It focuses on his death. That all looks very much like other biographies that you would have read from this time period. I think one thing, though, that may catch us by surprise, but when we think about it, it's not that much unlike biographies that we read today, is that things aren't necessarily in chronological order. So what do I mean by that? Let me just show you here on a a slide. These are some of the common accounts of Jesus healing and performing miracles that all appear in Matthew chapter 8, and nine. I used Matthew there as kind of the plumb line on the left. So I kept Matthew all in order because we're teaching Matthew, right? And he's my favorite. I'll just admit it. But if you notice, things that he puts in a certain order, Mark and Luke put in different orders. There's two accounts that Mark never even talks about. But if you just focus on the ones that Mark and Luke both record, they're not in the same order as Matthew. So what conclusion do we draw from that? That the gospel writers aren't telling us the life of Jesus in exact chronological order. Now, it's roughly chronological, right? They all start with his birth, except you know Mark doesn't, but roughly they start when he's young. They all end with his death and resurrection. But the middle part, when they're talking about his miracles, when they're talking about his teaching, it seems to be arranged topically. And that shouldn't concern us because we tell stories like that all the time i read a a excellent uh, biography on charles spurgeon recently and it was arranged that way you know it talked about his preaching ministry and then it talked about his school that he had to train pastors and then it talked about his orphanage right it topically each chapter would move through different aspects of his life and so the gospel writers are doing the same thing so it's a biography but it's a biography written a certain way and it's a biography written to make a point about jesus because there really is no other person who's ever lived like him, right? So to tell his story is a little bit different, and it's always going to be theological, right? If you, if you study the life of Jesus in any form, and you don't come away with some theological truth that you're supposed to ground your life in, then you've really missed the point of his coming, right? So it is a biography, but a biography with theological points. And I think this is an important one to keep in mind, because as we go through the Gospel of Matthew we're always gonna ask why did he include this story? Since we know that sometimes they left out stories. Remember John said if everything that was told about Jesus, we couldn't have enough books to contain it, right? So we always have to ask why this story? And then the second question we'll always have to ask is why this story here? Uh, Out of all the places in the account, why did they put it here? How does it fit with what came before? How does it fit with what came after? And as we start asking those questions, we'll try to trace an argument, a main point that Matthew has has made, because he's not just randomly sitting there just thinking of stories. He's very carefully crafted this, and he's been led the whole time by the Holy Spirit so that what he has recorded for us is exactly what we needed. All right? Any, Any questions about that so far? i got to look at my clock every once in a while just to see where I'm at. Okay, let's talk about the date. So when we talk about the date, the big question with all of the Gospels usually is, were they written before or after AD 70? Before or after the fall of Jerusalem? That's the big historical thing that happens in in Palestine and what we call today Israel in the first century. So Jesus is crucified either in the year 30 or 33, I think more likely 33. When he is here on earth, things with Rome are already contentious. There are already some people among his countrymen who uh, favor revolution. But later, during the life of the apostles, that definitely grows and escalates so that in the middle of the 60s, a full-out rebellion against Rome occurs and it's stamped out, and eventually Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. And as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, there's at least a couple places where Jesus seems to predict that this is going to take place. Now, an unbelieving scholar would then say, well, then it has to be written later, right? Because how could Matthew know to put in that prediction unless he wrote after the prediction came true? But for those of us who just believe that this is Scripture, and Jesus really is who he claims to be, and Matthew is his prophet, we have no problem with saying they actually can predict accurately the future, okay? So there's no reason why we would expect it, that it has to be written after AD 70. And there's actually some evidence that it was written earlier. So point A there, I talk about the, the absolute latest it could be written. So around AD 110, 115, a man named Ignatius, he writes a letter to the Smyrnians, and he seems to be alluding to a verse from Matthew. So that's the absolute latest. If he's writing about it around the year 110, that means about the one year 100 is about the cap. You know, we couldn't go. But I think there's actually evidence that it was earlier. We already saw that paragraph earlier from Irenaeus. Irenaeus believed that it was written while Peter and Paul were still ministering Rome. So that would put it in the 60s. That's when most conservative scholars would say it was written. There's some evidence, point C, that the book was written just a few years after Jesus' life. So here in Matthew chapter 27, verses 7 through 10, they're talking about the money that uh, Judas gives back to the temple treasury because he decides, I don't want this blood money. And it says that they took this money and they bought this field, and the field to this day is called the field of blood. Well, normally you would only say, to this day... If two things are true, one, a little bit of time has, come, has to go by. Like, you don't say that if it's just been weeks or months. You, you only say that if years have gone by. But the other thing means that it can't be past 80-70. It seems very unlikely that they would talk this way after the city of Jerusalem had been leveled by the Romans. It seems like the, the temple and this use of the field is still going on when Matthew writes this. So a little bit of time has gone by, but it's not yet 80,70. That would fit with, with a, a, a time frame a little bit a little bit sooner. All right. Let's go to the next page. Enough about the date. Recipients: to whom did Matthew write? If I'd asked you before the class, who, who are the main recipients? who are the audience of Matthew's Gospel, what would you have said? Yeah, the Jewish people. I think that's right. I think this is pretty widely recognized. There's just lots of little clues inside of his gospel that he's writing for his fellow Jews. Um, He references the Old Testament 129 times. So by far the most Old Testament references in the New Testament. He also sometimes will refer to Jewish customs without any kind of explanation. So for example, here at the top, we've got Matthew 15.2 um you know jesus's enemies come to him and they say why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders they don't wash their hands before they eat and matthew just seems to assume that we know what they're talking about and we know they're not talking about hygiene right they don't know what germs are back then (laughs) so they're talking about something other than just washing your hands due to hygiene but when we get to mark he actually includes this whole parenthetical comment so in our niv They helpfully put that in parentheses and they rightly show you that this is kind of a little aside. And Mark is writing for people who won't understand the custom. He's writing probably for Roman people, people who live in Italy. And so they have to have this explained to him that the Pharisees and the Jews don't eat unless they've gone through this ceremonial washing of their hands. So that seems to be some evidence that Matthew is writing for his fellow Jews. Why was it written? Okay, okay. This is, I think, where it gets a little bit more interesting. But why did Matthew write his gospel? Well, neither him or Mark gives us any kind of explicit statement of purpose. So remember what Luke does. Luke chapter 1, we get that little opening where he talks about Theophilus and how he wants to give this account. John tells us at the end that he's written these things so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we'll have life in his name. We wish that Matthew and Mark, maybe, had those kind of statements, but they don't. But I think if we read the book, and as we do this class together, we could do this deductively, or that would be inductively. Is it inductive if you save it to the end? I think so, right? We could take an inductive approach and save it to the end. But I'm going to give you what I think is the purpose, and then we'll put it to the test. We'll do it that way. I'm going to give you two purposes for the gospel, and then as we go through this class, uh, we'll uh, try to put this to the test. I say there in B, I think Matthew seems to have written his expression of the gospel message to evangelize and edify his fellow Jews. Not only does the book appear to be written with Jewish readers in mind, but Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So again, some of the Jewish flavor or the Old Testament flavor of this book. He refers to Jesus as the son of David nine times. He refers to Jerusalem as the city of the great king. He refers to the word kingdom 56 times. Now, all of the other Gospels combined, um, I'm sorry, if you put all four of the Gospels combined, it only appears 127. So out of 127 combined references, 56 of them are in Matthew. So there's definitely a Jewish element, so we'll have to include that in our purpose. But here I have a quote from Dr. Compton emphasizing that there's also a Gentile element. I'm assuming that most of us tonight are like myself. I'm I'm a Gentile, right? As Paul says to the Ephesians, I was born far away from the promises given to Israel, right? Without hope in this world. You know, my ancestors, when Matthew wrote this, are probably running around in some northern European forest worshiping trees and rocks, right? Absolute pagans. So that I, as a Gentile, have been brought near to the promises originally given to Israel is all of God's grace, right? And that's going to be one of the major points in Matthew's gospel. He's writing it to make a point to his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people, but he also has an eye on Gentiles, which is most of us tonight. Just some of the things here. So first of all, in his genealogy, he includes two Gentiles. He notes the coming of the Gentile Magi to honor the birth of the Jewish Messiah. So in two weeks, we'll talk about the coming of the wise men, the Magi. It's an interesting story about Gentiles coming to worship the Jewish king. He specifically mentions that the Gentiles would come to place their hope in the Messiah as well, and that they would be included in the kingdom. So he has these references to people who expect to be part of the kingdom, who get shut out. And then there's going to be people who never expected to be part of it, and you wouldn't have thought that they would be there, and they actually do get in. So he has both the unexpected, or the expected, and the unexpected. And his is the only gospel to mention the church. And maybe as an aside there, if you want to write in the margin, um, you could also say the new community, which was the reason why I gave our class this title. This class is about the king and his new community, the, what we call the church. The people who are representing Jesus in the in-between time, between his two comings. A group of people represented here in Trenton or back in Allen Park where I'm from. But in each one of our assemblies, each one of our communities, we represent one big community, right? A body of Christ that stretches over all of this world and stretches between his two two comings and includes both Jewish people and Gentile people. All right, let me try to pull that all together then. So I think Matthew appears to have a dual purpose in writing this gospel. Number one, he wanted to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah who would restore creation to its precursed state and rule the world from a renewed Jerusalem. In other words, Matthew emphasizes the future fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. All right? I'll say this a couple times as we go through the class. But I think it's a mistake sometimes when we say about Jesus that he wasn't the kind of Messiah or he wasn't the kind of king that the Old Testament predicted. Have you, have you heard people say that? It almost becomes cliche. We, we say often. I know I've said it, all right? So I'm not being overly harsh. It's something that we just always say, something we probably heard in Sunday school or we've heard in preaching. We, we get, well, they expected a conquering king but instead they got a suffering servant. Or they expected someone that would reign, right, and defeat the Romans, but instead they got someone who's meek and mild. I would suggest a better way of saying that is that he just hasn't been the expected Messiah yet. That he still will be. That someday the lion of the tribe of Judah will roar, right? Someday he will return with flaming eyes and a sword. He will execute judgment. That's what Isaiah 40 was talking about. Remember that original passage that we looked at from the Old Testament? It was that someday they would see the glory of the Lord as their Lord comes to him and he reigns. And so they need to be ready for him. They need to repent now so that they would be ready to receive their king. And the interesting thing, the the amazing, the marvelous thing about our Lord is that his days still continue. Every other major person in history has had a very small time frame in order to accomplish their work. Even someone like Elizabeth II, a long reign, but still it came to an end. But our Lord is not like that, right? Because he has risen and he lives forever. So his days continue. So everything that the Old Testament outlined that he will accomplish, he still has time to do it. We're just living in the in-between time. He's accomplished some of it, but he hasn't yet accomplished all of it. And Matthew's main emphasis, I think, is showing, yes, he is the guy. He's going to do everything someday that the Old Testament predicted, but then he also is going to have a piece to say about, but what about now? What about this in-between time between his two comings? Does that, does that make sense? Does that follow? And I'll try to develop that and defend it further as we go through this class. So he is exactly the Messiah, predicted in the Old Testament. He just hasn't done it all yet, but he will will someday. I think Matthew there, I say at the very bottom of the page, he's writing in a context where many would have found it very implausible that the Jewish Messiah was not only crucified, but also rejected by most of his fellow Jews. So even when he's quoting the Old Testament and talking about the the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and trying to connect that with prophecy, he still, I think, has an eye towards Gentile readers. The reason I say that is because in the ancient world, a God was always associated with a people group. Each people group had their own God. If you're a a Moabite, I'm sorry, you had a God. If you're a Philistine, you have a God. And if you're a Jew, you had a God, right? And so when the... Early apostles, the early Christians, they spread out in the Mediterranean world. They start sharing the gospel. To their friends and neighbors and coworkers. their message would have sounded like, oh, well, you want us to accept the Jewish God. That's basically what you're saying. You're saying my God is wrong. I have a fake God. But the Jewish God, who you call Jesus, who you say is the creator, he's the true God. And you're saying that I should turn from my misdirection and and follow him. That's what they would have heard. But then that would have caused a problem for them. Well, they would have said, well, first of all, most Jewish people don't even believe in him. See, he's supposed to be the Jewish God, and the Jewish people, they killed him. Which leads to the second problem, right? This is the foolishness of the cross that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. You want me to believe in someone that not only did his own people reject him, his own people group don't think he's the right God, but they're actually the ones who crucified him. They put him on the cross. I think this is illustrated in a little bit of ancient graffiti. So this is sad but true. Um, I think I lost my connection there, but OK. Was that going on for a while? I'm sorry about that. Let me try this one more time here. because graffiti only makes sense if you guys can see it. I probably accidentally hit something. All right, we're back. So this is um, somewhere between the first and third century, so probably written... Probably created somewhere around the year 200. So the year 200, we found this in a hill outside of of Rome. So the year 200, that would be about 100 years after the New Testament is completed. So on the left, this is what it actually looks like. So it was carved into stone. On the right, someone's done a pencil drawing so that we can see it more clearly. So that's what's going on. So we have a man with his arm raised, probably a salute or an act of worship or honor. And then you have this character on a cross with a donkey's head. And the inscription reads, Alex Manos is worshiping his God. And it's debated, but what we most likely think is going on here is this is a non-Christian making fun of a Christian in Rome. He's saying that this guy, this Alex Manos, whoever he is, he worships someone on a cross, and they're ridiculing that. It's just a little bit of a taste of what it would have been like for our Christian brothers and sisters in the first couple centuries in the Roman world, trying to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, and they would have said, well, you're trying to get me to follow the Jewish God, and they don't even like him, and you're trying to get me to follow somebody who was crucified like a slave. How foolish, right? I'm not going to do that. So I think that is behind all, in some ways, all four of the gospel writers. They're writing for apologetic purposes. They're writing to defend their faith and their culture. Now, most people today in our culture tend to have a positive view about Jesus. It's a diminished view, like he's just kind of a teacher. He's maybe kind of a hippie figure. He's a good role model. But I think increasingly, we eventually are going to become more of a culture like they lived in in the first and second century where he's actually a, an object of ridicule, of scorn, of weakness, when weakness isn't cool, right? But Jesus clearly is the Jewish Messiah. Matthew is going to go to great pains, like all the Gospel writers, to show that his crucifixion was for a specific and good reason, and that his death not, has not been a failure, but actually has accomplished the salvation of not only the coming nation of Israel, but also all of us who live in this in-between time. So flipping the page, I think his second purpose for writing is that he wants to show that God's promises to Israel had not failed due to the rejection of Christ. According to his wise plan, God is using the time period between Christ's rejection and his second coming to build a new community. That's the church that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles who will enter Jesus' kingdom. In other words, Matthew also emphasizes the spread of this new community under Jesus' lordship while we wait for the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So I think this verse here, this isn't in your notes, but Matthew 1.21. I don't know if you could say this is the key verse in Matthew. I don't know if I want to be that restrictive but it's at least one of the key verses. This is kind of his thesis statement. This is his opening punchline, so to speak. When Joseph is told that his espoused wife is going to supernaturally give birth to a son, and the, the angel who reveals this to him says that you're supposed to give him the name Jesus or, or Joshua. He's named after the, the great deliverer of Joshua, who delivered the people of Israel through the conquest, and the reason why he's supposed to have this name, which means the Lord saves Joshua, Yeshua, is because he will save his people from their sins. That really starts the whole agenda of the gospel account. And when he says his people, I think originally that would have meant the people of Israel, right? I think they're of primary focus. That like Isaiah 40 said, that there was going to be a time someday when the people of Israel could be comforted that they could know that their time of trials had ended, that their sins had been paid for, right? That's what Isaiah 40 said. But as we go through the gospel account, and as Isaiah also said, it would be too small of a thing for the Messiah just to save one nation. As great as that will be. I mean, just think of how unlikely that sounds to most people when we explain that, that the the nation of Israel will someday have their sins be removed, that they'll be restored, right? That seems very unlikely when we talk about it. Uh-oh. Do I have to pay $12.99 a month? Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think it does, like indirectly, in the sense that they were his chosen people in the Old Testament. Yeah. But I think that secondarily, as we go through the Gospel account, it's going to start becoming clear that his people are also going to include Gentiles, like you and I, who have been brought near. One last slide. I'll see if I can get it up there so we can see it. But while I'm paused here, any, any questions or thoughts? Uh, i got to remember how I did that now. More tools. That very last point that I wanted to talk about was the structure. So, how does Matthew make his argument? Now, do you remember that opening slide where I showed you? There's my Google Calendar, sorry. You find out that I'm secretly a Yankees fan. It's uh. <laughs> Greek. Uh. You remember that opening slide where I showed you how they wrote the original manuscripts? All the letters run together. So how do you show structure? How do you mark paragraphs And that, when, you, when you're when you writing that way? You know, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, right? For some reason, I can't get this to come back. Are you getting it on your end? Yeah, it's got yours. Recently. Okay, I think maybe I got it. <laughs> So you, you, can't, you can't use paragraph breaks the way we do. They, they're, they're not indenting, they're not, they're not printing, they don't have italics, they don't have bold. You know, when we open up our nice English versions of the Bible, we have captions. So we'll introduce a, a section with a little description. I remember my old Bibles when I, when I was a little kid. Sometimes they'd even have the descriptions up at the top of the page, and you could find things easy that way. Well, those are all helps that have been added later. But what did the original writers do well one of the things that they could do was repeated phrases so they could use a catch word if you saw a line or a whole you know group of words repeated they could use that to kind of create chunks so the the repeated phrase here that i wanted to show you is from the end of each of the five discourses in matthew's gospel so i'm going to argue that matthew's gospel takes five big discourses or chunks of jesus's teaching and it crafts the rest of the story around those five chunks so this isn't the map of michigan this is my hand here representing matthew so i'll spread my fingers out right so the think of the five discourses. so roughly i mean i wouldn't die for this but this is what i think is happening is that the first one and the last one are parallel so you got a sermon on the mount and then you got a sermon on the mount of olives the first one talks about who gets into the kingdom. What does true repentance look like? The last one talks about, well, when will the kingdom come? What are going to be the signs? The second and the fourth, I think, are roughly parallel. And I tried to show that with indentation there. So the second the second one is Jesus sending out his disciples on the mission to actually create this new community. The fourth one is, well, how do we live together in the community once it's formed? That's where we get the passage on, forgiving each other, helping each other, what to do with discipline within inside the community. But in these types of structures, the way they develop it, it's usually the middle one that's receiving the most emphasis. So they've, they've structured this in a way so that there's this parallelism going on, and the middle one stands out. And the middle one is at the heart, no pun intended, of Matthew's gospel. This is where he gives the kingdom parables. That's what we're driving at. That's what we're going to conclude with in December. This is where he explains, well, what about the in-between time? What about the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? What's the world going to look like? And Jesus paints these pictures through parables about the age that you and I currently live in, this age in which the church is being built. And we know that these chunks are being chunked that way if i can say that by matthew because at the end of each one of his discourses he has this reoccurring phrase when jesus had finished now he'll put something different after so the first one is when jesus had finished saying these things when jesus had finished instructing so forth but in greek it's it's that those five six words six words at the bottom In our English translations, it's five words. And you can check this out, that at the end of each one of these discourses, you have these same phrases. And so in between those five, on this end, he puts an introduction, presenting the king, the genealogy, the infancy account. On the other end, he puts a conclusion, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then between, he takes little topical snapshots of Jesus' life. So he takes... Things that Jesus did, things that happened during his life that fit with those five discourses. Now people debate do the do the discourses go with the one or do the narratives go with the discourse before or do they go with the one after? If you look down at my my outline there on page six, I'm more convinced that each narrative block goes with the discourse that follows it. So for example, if you look at 2a, so 2 is the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. The discourse itself is actually in chapters 5 through 7. And I think the narrative in chapter 3 and 4 gets us ready for that. And then you've got another one, another discourse in chapter 10. And then you've got a narrative block. Now, other people argue it's the other way. That the narratives come first and then... Or, I'm sorry, the discourse comes first and then the narratives. It could be argued... I think in the end, it doesn't really make a huge difference because Matthew wants us to read the whole thing straight through and think about the whole message. But we're really going to pay special attention to those five discourses as we go through. We're going to think about how those five develop Matthew's main points. And then we're going to see that these little sections in between were topically arranged in order to illustrate and flesh out those discourses. I think that means my time limit has been reached. So I think that's everything that I wanted to say and talk about tonight, but there is still a few more minutes. So is there anything you would like to ask me or get clarification on? I apologize for my technical difficulties. I'll get that figured out. All right. Well, can we close in a word? um, Sorry, go ahead. Old about Jonah the three days, three days yeah the night, yeah. And it doesn't fit with the yeah yeah we definitely will cover that yep. Dog, okay okay <laughs> any other questions yeah, I can't cover everything there's a lot right mm-hmm. I, I talk fast people tell me sometimes I talk too fast but uh, the best way is if you read the section ahead of time and if you have questions just come prepared and we can talk about them during the class, all right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I'm thankful for your son. I hope that he was honored tonight because we are thinking about his life, his words, and I'm thankful that he lives and that he will come someday for us. I pray that you would use this class as we go through it in the next few weeks to be a means of making us more like him. And we ask for this in his name, amen.